says, therefore, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. And then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered and said, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my Father are one. And Father, we humbly ask now, help us as we continue in this time of worship to have a heart that is good and fertile soil that you, by your Spirit, can plant it down deep into our hearts, the Word of God, to bring forth good fruit from our lives. Lord, we long for that. We recognize that we always need to hear what you would say to us in our lives, personally, collectively, as a a family of believers. So we ask now, please prepare us, Lord. You know what that means for each and every one of us. Take away the distractions and things that would hinder us from hearing what you would say to us in your thought and intent behind this portion of your word. Speak to our hearts by your Spirit's ministry. We ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, do you live in your life today with a sense of security personally? Uh, I think myself that security is probably one of the most beautiful gifts at times we can experience in our lives when we have a real sense of feeling secure. In fact, I want to read you just the definition of the word security. It's defined as this, the quality or state of being free from danger, harm, Fear, anxiety, experiencing safety and knowing things are secure. You know, though there may be the continual and growing presence of things that threaten to harm, how wonderful when in the midst of that still you can have a sense of security in the midst of those things. A security as well that not comes, not just comes from ourselves but a security that comes from God, that you have a sense of security because of your awareness of God and who He is and what He can do, knowing that He can keep us by His power. And I think this section we're going to look at together this morning is really a section of Scripture that addresses security. It demonstrates as we look at it in the life of Jesus, Jesus Himself, His incredible security as a man in His obedience to obey the will of God, It also demonstrates to us as well the security that we can all experience from God if we choose to be followers of Jesus and the benefit of that bringing security into our individual lives. The backdrop again of where we're at this morning, remember Jesus has continuously been doing things whereby he's been always doing those things that please 
the Father in heaven. Now, because of that, he was not always pleasing man, which is very typical when you're doing the will of God. You're not always going to have the approval of mankind on this earth. And Jesus continued to do things. Remember, we've been watching to upset the traditional uh, a religious establishment in his day like helping people and healing people on the Sabbath day just recently we saw him heal a man who had been born blind from birth on the Sabbath and that caused a great uproar Jesus has also repeatedly made very bold but yet very true statements about himself both to the common people and the religious leaders who greatly oppose him at this time statements like that he has been sent from heaven claiming in different ways that he himself was God referring to himself as the door for people to be saved as God's fulfillment of the good shepherd and even claiming most recently that he has power over death itself that he would choose when he would die and that he would then even afterwards raise himself by his own power back from the dead now having said those things and been doing those things that's why I pick it up with me in verse 19 we read the response towards Jesus saying verse 19 therefore there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. So because of the authority of the absolute truth that Jesus spoke, the responders among the things that he was saying and doing was separation among the group. People who hear truth are always forced to divide. Uh, this is just a common reality. When truth is spoken, when it's proclaimed, uh, it causes there to be, if you would, a necessity of decision among its respondents you must choose what side you're now going to stand upon and there is no middle ground well verse 20 look at it it says and many said of jesus here's the division now we're going to see verse 21 and 22 many of them said he is a demon and is mad why do you listen to him so shockingly some were so aggressively resistant to jesus in that day that once again this isn't the first time if we've been studying john's gospel once again they publicly accused the son of god of being demon possessed and actually being insane or out of his mind verse 21 tells us others said here's the division these are not the words of one who has a demon can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So others, being more reasonable, it seems, identified what was taking place in those who were so critical of Jesus as sort of just an accusation that came from pride and somewhat even foolishness because of their rejection of him and their severe animosity towards him as a person, recognizing that since demons would be serving the work of the devil himself, whose number one agenda is to harm people and to destroy lives and ruin people, they're saying, why would someone who just so compassionately opened the eyes of a man who had been blind from birth, how could he possibly be doing something by the influence of a demon doing the devil's work? And further, Old Testament prophecies that all the Jews should have known predicted that when the messiah the savior came one of the things he would do would be to open the eyes of the blind so they're saying how how could someone and why would someone with a demon open the eyes of the blind but again we see there will always be a division among people 
because of Jesus and because of Jesus' sayings. In the same way we see this happening, a great division in the day when he was here in the flesh, the same will always be true throughout whatever duration of human history. Jesus Christ, his person and who he is, and the things that he states will always cause division. Now that is not because Jesus seeks to cause division. It's just that who Jesus is and what he represents and declares as absolute truth spiritually, his life and words, cause people to have to make a decision spiritually and therefore it causes a separation among humanity. Some will choose to believe and, and respond to what Jesus says. Others will choose to refuse and to reject Jesus and what he says. Either you refuse and reject or you believe and follow. There really is no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus and his words. So some will refuse Jesus and that will lead to insecurity in their life and instability in their life and then it will end in eternal ruin of their life. Others will choose to believe Jesus and embrace what he says and that will bring a life of great security and it brings a life of stability and ultimately a life of eternal destiny with the Lord and with God forever. Well, verse 22 then tells us that it was the time of the feast of dedication in Jerusalem and it was winter. Now, what you don't recognize here between verse 21 and verse 22 is here the identification in verse 22 the Holy Spirit gives to us of the holiday and the season of time that this was indicate to us something important here that about a two to three month time period has elapsed between verse 21 and verse 22. This is not just a continuation of the temple activities we've been seeing. This is now a few months later as we come to verse 22, which puts us now about three months before the crucifixion of Jesus. It says that it was the feast of dedication that was celebrated in Jerusalem during the winter season. It would happen around the time frame of we call around December. Now, the feast of dedication we know more commonly today is the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah. It's about an eight day long festival of lights that the Jews celebrate. It commemorated from the day it started the cleansing and the restoration of the temple by a man called Judas Maccabeus after the temple had been desecrated and, and ruined by a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. And as the result of that restoration of the temple, they instituted this celebration. It's not per se a biblical holiday according to the law of God, but it's a holiday that the Jews celebrate as a result of a great deliverance from their enemies. That's what this time frame gives to us now as we continue verse 23. It says, And Jesus, notice, was there for the feast of Hanukkah, this celebration, walking in the temple in Solomon's porch. So as was the custom of Jesus, we see this throughout the Gospels, when the people of God assembled to worship, Jesus assembled with them. When God's people got together, we see the manner of life of Jesus as a man is that when God's people assembled at the temple or for times of worship, Jesus was always present. We see this pattern of his life in the scriptures. It says here he was walking around Jerusalem in Solomon's porch. Now, uh, in the temple in that day, in the outer part of the temple, there were porches in the different areas or sort of the four sides of it. And Solomon's porch was on the eastern side of the temple. 
And the reason it was referred to as Solomon's Porch is people thought it contained the remains of Solomon's temple in the days in which uh, he built and restored the temple at that time. So uh, this is where Jesus is now during the feast. He's walking around the temple. The stage is set. And again, verse 24, not really surprising at this time, the Jews, it says, surrounded Jesus and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So the picture here, kind of like a group of hungry sharks at feeding time here, the Jewish religious leaders, again, they now encircle Jesus and they begin quite intensely to interrogate Jesus once again. They're questioning him. They're somewhat accusing him. You see there in verse 24, listen to their manner of speech. They say to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? And I want you to notice that. They're blaming their doubt and unbelief on Jesus. You're keeping us in doubt. Our unbelief is your fault, the idea here is. Now, now to me, this is amazing. Here is God. He graciously gives to us as human beings a free will, which means the right and the freedom to make our own decisions and our own determinations. God doesn't force us like a robot. He, He lovingly allows us to choose and decide for ourselves as human beings. But isn't it so true, if we're honest, how often people yet turn around and they blame God for what's going on in their life? I want the right to choose. Okay, I'll create you with the right to choose. And then we choose and we go, I can't believe God's doing this in my life. I can't believe God that this... And and I have seen this pattern so many times unfold itself where people make decisions and choices, God allows us the freedom to choose and then the condition that we end up being in or our circumstances or what begins to take place, people then raise their fists to God in anger and want to point the finger at God and blame God like them here. You're making us stay in doubt. You're causing us to be in unbelief and they're kind of blaming Jesus for their very own unbelief and doubt at this point. And they almost sarcastically here kind of interrogating him. It seems like they're trying to intimidate Jesus. They say to him, if you're the Christ, then tell us plainly. If you're this Messiah, then then tell us plainly. Stop hiding it from us. I think they're almost kind of trying to unsettle Jesus or intimidate him. And verse 25, Jesus answers them now and says to them, I told you and you do not believe. He says, I've already told you clearly, plainly. We've been studying John's gospel alone. We've seen repeatedly how Jesus has directly claimed it wasn't something he was trying to hide, that he was the Messiah of Israel sent from God. The problem, Jesus says, is you've chosen not to believe. You've chosen to to reject what I'm saying and you won't accept the truth I'm trying to convey. The point is this. It was not a need of more information. It was not a need of greater revelation. That was not the case. It was a choice that they had refused what Jesus had had said to them. And instead of changing their mindset and their ways as human beings... And believing what Jesus said was true, what was taking place is they stubbornly wanted Jesus to change his words to accommodate what they wanted as human beings. And does not the same thing happen to this day still? This is what people desire. 
Instead of submitting to the fact of what their creator and their God and the authority overall, people want Jesus to change his claims. People want Jesus to claim what he says to accommodate their life. And rather than people in humility changing their mindset and their ways and saying, I've been wrong and I need to change my ways or my way of looking at this and believing what Jesus says is true and submitting to the authority of that. Instead, people so often stubbornly refuse because they want Jesus to change his words or ways to accommodate what they want. To submit to them in a sense. And and let me tell you something on behalf of Jesus. Though Jesus is very forgiving, he will never be pressured to change or accommodate for anyone. He's just kind of secure like that. He's just kind of confident that he is who he is and the truth is the truth and that he's probably right and that as human beings, we tend to be wrong. And and here, this is such a, a tragedy. So much that they you know, want Jesus to change his ways, they were refusing the very thing that would help them in their lives. So much did Jesus, however, watch this, want people to know the truth spiritually. He didn't just speak the truth in his words, but even beyond that, verse 25 goes on to show us he demonstrated the truth by his works to try and give evidence. Look what Jesus goes on to say. I've told you, but you don't believe. But then he says, and the works that I do in my Father's name. They as well bear witness of me. So the works of God that Jesus did just proved with greater evidence who he was, his divinity, that he indeed was God living among them. These works of God that Jesus did fulfilled the prophecies of hundreds of years ago that were given as predictions so far in advance That Jesus came as a man and began to walk out in fulfillment to demonstrate that he was God's Messiah. That he was the one who God had sent to deliver the people so that the Messiah could be easily identified. And Jesus was trying to help them to see this. And I look at this and it reminds me how Jesus is so faithful in his continuous, repeated efforts to try and do everything he can to plainly and clearly reveal himself to people. It amazes me the extent that Jesus will go through to continuously try to get a person's attention. I mean, it it astonishes me the endurance of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the patience of Jesus. How many times... And how many different ways, creatively, he keeps trying to utilize to do whatever he can to reveal himself to someone. To show a person who he really is. And to cause them to realize their personal need of him in their life, hoping they'll submit him. Whether it's through words that he uses, through the voice of many different avenues to communicate to people, to try and get them to hear his voice speaking to them, or the works of God, the ways he does things and works in their life to get them to recognize, man, maybe this is the Lord trying to get my attention. I tell you this, no one will ever be able to stand before God when they're dead and they stand before their maker no one will ever be able to stand before God as an eternal being which we all are and sincerely blame Jesus for not giving adequate and sufficient revelation of himself and opportunity for them to respond to what he has offered to them no one will ever have that opportunity 
Because Jesus has made the way available and Jesus consistently and persistently till our dying breath keeps trying words and works and everything he can to bear witness of himself that we might respond. Jesus goes on, verse 26, but you do not believe, he says, because you are not of my sheep as I said to you. So Jesus, notice in verse 26, identifies his total awareness of their spiritual condition that he knew at this point where they were at because they did not believe and they did not live submitted to the lordship of Jesus. They were basically refusing Jesus as their good shepherd, the idea here. And as a result, they were remaining outside of the spiritual flock of God as Jesus has been using this metaphor of a sheep and a shepherd. And so they were living because they had rejected Jesus as their shepherd like lost and wandering sheep like sheep without a shepherd to care for them and to lead them. So they were living without any security, struggling just like a lost and wandering sheep, struggling unnecessarily to survive and to get by and, 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 and to navigate life's existence. And basically like sheep without a shepherd, they were wandering from one thing to the next thing, searching and trying to find what they were looking for, directionless and empty on the inside and hungry, struggling to survive in a hard and a dangerous world and doing everything they can to keep from feeling lonely and anxious and unsettled and they have no stability in their life and their existence because this is the, the outcome of a person who rejects Jesus as their good shepherd. They live a life that's unsettled and unstable and they may try and do everything they can to be their own shepherd and navigate their way through this difficult world but they always end up struggling internally and living so unstable in the inner man. And then it begins to bring instability in their own personal life as well. And what's worse is unbelief towards Jesus as he refers to those in this day. It's not just instability in this life, but there's then the absence of spiritual and eternal security. That's the greater concern. When a person is not Jesus' sheep and when they don't believe in him, they have no, no security eternally regarding their life. John chapter 3, verse 36 said it this way. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides, remains on him. So instead of a person living assured with a sense of, of I know what's going to happen after I die. The unconverted person, the one who rejects Jesus in their life as Lord and Shepherd and Savior, instead of having any sense of rest, they live in a sense of constant inward fear of their greatest enemy, death. And they live life terrified, more than anything else, of death. Because there's no sense internally in their heart that I have a security that, yeah, I'm afraid to die, but I know it's going to happen after I die. And they don't have that security, so they live with a sense of constant insecurity, of a sense of judgment after death or uncertainty, and it's a horrible way to have to live outside of a relationship with Christ. So verse 27, Jesus then says, My sheep, those who do know him, they hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So in the same way Jesus knows those who are not committed to him and not his sheep, he also knows those we see here who are his true followers. Jesus is saying here, verse 27, as it pertains to those who are authentically my sheep 
and who are a part of the spiritual flock of God, he says, don't worry, I know them. I know who they are, he says. No concern over that. Even as Jesus knows those who may pretend to be a sheep and really aren't, and even as Jesus knows those who maybe are misled, thinking that they are a part of his flock and quite aren't, and will one day, the Bible says, have those who in that condition will say to Jesus when they die, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name and do that in your name? And Jesus is going to say to those individuals, depart from me, I never knew you. Yes, you went through religious motions. Yes, you even did some quality religious works but you never had a relationship with me. I never knew you. That's what matters above all. And in the same way Jesus knows those in that condition, he also knows for sure those who are his spiritual sheep. Jesus says there, my sheep hear my voice, I know them. I know who are my sheep. No question or concern. There's that security of knowing that Jesus knows who we are when we have a relationship with him, that we're securely members of his flock. He knows the submission in our heart towards him. And in fact, even here, he mentions two indicators in verse 27, how we can know for ourselves and be assured and even somewhat in evaluating others, those who are truly Christians and followers of Jesus. He says there, look at the text, my sheep, he says two things, hear my voice and they follow me. This is how you can tell, Jesus says. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Just like sheep follow the guidance of their shepherd, when someone begins to live their life in a manner that is consistent with personally wanting to hear the voice of the Lord for themselves, and when they then are responding to the lordship of Jesus over their life, allowing what Jesus wants for their life to be what directs them, obeying his word and his will, following Jesus and his word and his ways in their attitudes and in their decisions and the way they decide things and in how they live their life and in how they speak and, and, and if you would uh, allow their life to be ordered, it's ordered by I don't follow my own dictates of my own heart. I don't follow my feelings. I don't follow my attitudes. I don't follow what everybody else does. I don't follow what I feel like I want to do because I'm in charge. No, they follow Jesus because they submit to his lordship. They hear his voice and they follow him and what he wants and, and let Jesus direct their life, that becomes a confirming indication, Jesus says, that that person has had a spiritual transformation, that they have made the Lord their shepherd. They're no longer a wandering rebellious sheep anymore. They have now made Jesus their shepherd and therefore they hear his voice and they follow him. Listen to how Peter describes this concept. First Peter chapter 2, verse 25, he describes what has happened in the true Christian's life. Listen to the way he says. He says, For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. You see how he describes it there? He says... The person who's now a Christian was once like a sheep going astray. That's what we were once like. We all begin life self-governed, ruling ourselves, doing as we wish. That's how we all begin life. But then there must come this point of personal awareness. What am I doing? 
I'm like a sheep that's going astray. I'm not submitting to the one who rules over my life. And there must come that personal awareness that we are a sinful sheep going astray. This is a necessary part of salvation where a person realizes they need to be saved. It's a novel concept, isn't it? But there's a lot of people who are not yet saved and one of the first primary reasons is they still don't believe that they actually need to be saved. That's called the conviction of sin, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. There must come this personal crisis awareness, oh my goodness, I'm lost. I'm a sheep going astray. And when that conviction happens to a person, then there must come a personal decision in faith to repent of this and as first peter says to then return to the shepherd and overseer of your soul and to come to jesus and ask him to forgive you for that personal rebellion and to let him take over as the shepherd of your soul and the lord of your life the question this morning is this has that happened in your life yet has that happened Have you truly come to a place where you've recognized your own spiritual rebellion and you've turned to Jesus yourself? I'm not talking about sitting in a church and gradually assimilating into becoming a Christian. It doesn't happen. There comes a moment where you recognize, I am lost, I need to be saved, and you choose to turn to Jesus for that. I think Jesus' statement here also gives to us an incredible indication of how simple the Christian relationship is supposed to be so we don't complicate it. My sheep, he says, this is what they do. They hear my voice and they follow me. That's what Christianity is. It's it's relational. You listen to Jesus and you just follow Jesus. As a good shepherd, you let him lead your life. It's not a complicated thing to serve or follow our Lord. Now, for those who are Jesus' sheep, he gives here, notice, some really wonderful promises of security in these next couple verses to give us spiritual assurance. Look what he says, verse 28 with me. He says, regarding those who are his sheep, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. So regarding Jesus being who? The eternally existent son of God, who possesses eternal life in himself, he then says here, therefore those who choose to follow me, I give my followers of myself, of my own eternal life, I give them the free gift of the eternal age-abiding quality of life so that they will dwell with God forever in heaven, assuring us and granting us that after our death, We don't have to be concerned because we know we have the quality of eternal life already within us and simply now we will experience that in heaven forever with our Lord. Jesus assures us here that because he's given us eternal life, he assures the believer that we will never perish. The idea there of perish indicates to face continuous eternal ruin, the torment continually of the lake of fire. Listen, as a Christian... When you receive Jesus Christ, you receive the gift of God, which is eternal life that Jesus gives to you. As you receive him, you receive his eternal quality of life because he possesses eternal life as God. And therefore, you never again have to worry or wonder about your eternal destiny. You don't have to fret or fear or keep track of, well, I had a pretty good week or a pretty bad week or your relationship with Jesus is what assures you that you will not face 
judgment in hell because of your faith in Christ and the gift that's been given to you of which Jesus is not an Indian giver. Will you die physically? Yes. But that death physically is just the transitional process to usher you who already possess eternal life within your spirit to then experience your eternal body and your eternal existence in heaven with God forever. This is an assurance of what Jesus has offered to us as the result of following him. 1 John 5 gives it to us this way. It says, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, listen, that you may know that you have eternal life and you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Do you see what the Bible says? That you may know. That you can know that you have eternal life. If your faith is in Christ and you've received Jesus Christ, you can know that you have eternal life. Do you ever talk to people sometimes? You ask, do you know if you're going to heaven after you die? Well, I don't know. I mean, does anyone know? Does any, can anybody know? Yes. The Bible says it's not a, I hope so, maybe, hope the, the scales balance out, hope I can tip it in my favor 10 minutes before I get hit by a truck. You can know. The way you know is your relation to Jesus. If you have Jesus in your life and you truly have embraced him and received him, then you've received eternal life and it's been given to you by Jesus. It can't be taken away. If you don't have Jesus and you've yet refused Jesus and not responded to him in salvation and lordship, then the Bible says you can know you don't yet have eternal life. That is the simple defining thing. It's not what you do, it's who you know that will make that ultimate determination in your soul. Verse 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life, they shall never perish. And then he goes on to say, this is secure, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Notice, when Jesus gives a gift, it is a sure thing, and by golly, unlike any appliance, it's got a lifetime eternal warranty. It's never going to fail. It's never going to break down. Jesus has you in his strong hand. He is not going to let anything or anyone pull you away from him. You are in his hand. He's committed to hold on to us until the finish of that spiritual and eternal work. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. How confident we can be that Jesus is committed to us in the marital relationship spiritually. You know, some of us have been forsaken, abandoned, you know, uh, betrayed in close relationships, maybe a parent-child relationship or a marriage relationship, and that's wounded something within us. Listen, don't transfer what you've experienced humanly over to Jesus. Jesus is not going to abandon you. He's not going to give up on the vow Jesus is going to stay committed in that marital relationship. His vows for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health till death brings you home to me. That's the heart of Jesus. And he has the strength and the power in his eternal right hand to assure that. During our Christian walk, let's be honest, at times there are going to be things that are going to try and pull us away from Jesus. Sin and Satan and things that we experience are going to try and draw us away and then condemn us we've gone too far but Jesus in his love and grace says forever for always 
no matter what. And I may and you may at times let go of Jesus' hand for a time period, but he is never going to let go of your hand. And he is going to make sure that he does what he needs to do to, because of his eternal commitment to you, pull you back close to him relationally once again. Great, great security, not because of us, but because of the commitment and the faithfulness of Jesus. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Well, it gets better if that weren't enough. He says, and my father, verse 29, who's given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So Jesus testifies that his father in heaven, who is greater in power and authority than anything in existence, is actually the one who oversees this whole process of the keeping power of our soul. Do you see what Jesus says? Look with me in verse 29 there. He says that the father is the one who initially gives us to Jesus in salvation. He says, my father is the one who has given them to me. That implies the doctrine of divine election that we find in the Bible. That before we ever chose to follow Jesus, God the Father had already chosen us and given us to Jesus. We chose him because he first chose us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5 says, He chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. He says, this is how you can know you're secure because not only am I holding you with my hand, but he says, my father has his hand upon you to keep you as well. And in fact, the reason he says is this was all my father's idea initially. He gave you to me even before you submitted to me. And let me say this this morning. When God makes a decision to do something, he's not going to let any man override that. I love this imagery here of no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. The strong hand of a father holding the hand of his spiritual child. I remember when our kids were little and we'd be crossing a dangerous street or something like that. And you say, hold my hand now because we're going to cross the street and it's dangerous and you don't want them to just go darting out and get hit by a car. So you'd say, hold my hand. But listen, I never relied on them to hold my hand. I held their hand. I might have said, hold my hand, but I was holding their hand firmly and securely. I wasn't depending upon them to keep themselves safe and secure. Are you kidding me? I was holding their hand to ensure that they arrived safely, securely to the destination that I was taking them to. Now, if that's true humanly, how much more is that true with an eternally magnificent, loving, faithful, heavenly father who says, you're in my hand and nobody's going to snatch you out of my hand. I'm going to hold you and keep you and preserve you amidst your stumblings and shortcomings and temptations and Satan's efforts. No one is going to snatch you out of the hand of the Father. What a wonderful security to have regarding your soul and your eternal destiny. Jesus then says, verse 30, and I and my Father are one. So now to ensure all the more how secure we are in connection to this, He speaks here of how he and his father are 100% unified in all things working together. Though indeed the father in heaven, the son of God, 
Two distinct persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet they are one in essence, dwelling in total unity and oneness, and therefore everything they do, the works of God are in complete unity, complete cooperation. Here it's speaking in relationship to the reinforcement of our security spiritually. Jesus has us in one hand, the Father has us in another hand. That's a pretty good security detail. That's pretty, pretty good there. The idea here is whatever the Father desires, the Son desires. Whatever the Father does, the Son does. Whatever the Father can offer, the Son can supply. And if the Son grants you forgiveness and eternal life, the Father stamps that with endorsement and accepts it and guarantees that we are secure because they are working together. Now, Jesus saying, I and the Father of one, of course, is once again, you notice, making a direct claim that he's God. I and the Father are one, claiming that he's God. And that usually doesn't go over real well with the Jewish leaders, remember? So watch what happens, verse 31. So then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. So once again, they're angrily ready to execute Jesus for, in their estimation, falsely claiming that he's God. Well, Jesus answered and said, Many good works I've shown you from my Father. For which of these works... Do you stone me? So Jesus instead, watch this, instead of getting intimidated, here they are encircling him now with stones in their hands. Instead of getting intimidated, Jesus is so sure and secure in who he is, he asks this probing question, I think again, not to be sarcastic, but to try and reach them. He says, hold on, hold on. Before you execute me, could I just ask a simple question? Of all the good works I've done on my father's behalf to help people and do kind things, could you tell me which one of those nice things has so offended you that you're going to murder me right now? I mean, again, what I think he's trying to bring conviction to their spirit again, what, to make them recognize the, you know, the, the reality in their hearts and minds that they're not seeing. Verse 33, the Jews answered him saying, for a good work we do not stone you but for blasphemy, claiming that you're God, because you being a man make yourself to be God. Now, here's what's interesting. They accuse Jesus of blasphemy, saying you're a man and you're claiming or making yourself out to be God. The truth of the matter, it was the exact opposite. Jesus was God who had become a man. They're saying you're a man and you're trying to claim that you're God, so we're going to put you to death. That's blasphemy. What they were failing to see, it was the exact opposite. He wasn't a man making himself God. He was God who had made himself man to reveal God to humanity, to reach humanity, and to reconcile man back to God in a relationship. Now, they're ready to stone Jesus for claiming that he's God. Verse 34 says, Jesus answered and said, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent of the world, you are blaspheming just because I said I am the son of God? Now here's what's going on here. Jesus tries to use the scripture to help address them in his own defense. He quotes from Psalm 82 there in verse 34 that the scripture declared you are gods where God at one point in the Psalms referred to the earthly judges in the day of Israel. That's what the reference is to there. And he called them gods with a little g. The Hebrew term is the Elohim. 
And it's the same term that's also translated in Exodus 21 and 22 as judges, referring to the judges of the land who made decisions in the days of Israel. And even as those human judges, basically as representatives of God's authority, they made decisions civilly and judgments civilly, just like God makes judgments and decisions ultimately. God used this term on one occasion in Psalm 82 where he referenced them with this term, the judges, the Elohim, and it was translated gods with a little g. So Jesus wanting to use the scripture says, if he called them gods who were just human beings to whom the world, the word of God came and the scripture can't be broken, do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent of the world, you're blaspheming because I claim I am the son of God? In other words, Jesus says, hold on, you're okay with your earthly judges having been referred to as gods. He says, I'm only claiming to be the son of God. Cut me a break here. <laughs> Amazing how Jesus can use the scripture to such a powerful, incredible way. Well, let's go on. Verse 37, he says, if I do not do the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do, though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I in him. So Jesus says, if my works that I'm doing, if they don't reflect God, if what I'm doing is inconsistent with the nature of God and his ways and my works are not the works of the Father, then okay, I agree with you. Don't believe me, he says. But he says, listen, verse 38, he says, even if you won't believe me because of your personal hard attitude towards me, he's saying they're pleading, please, he says, would you at least consider the evidence of the works themselves? The evidence that are so clear to try and convince you of who I am. Pay attention here with verse 38 with me of the heart condition of Jesus. Look what he's saying there. He says that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Jesus so desperately wanted them to see the reality of who he was spiritually and what he was offering to them. And this is the thing that's, that strikes me. He wanted even his strongest enemies to know and to believe the truth that could help them spiritually and eternally, I have to say, that is incredible love. That is incredible, incredible love. And it's incredible security on the part of Jesus as a man. This demonstrates to me once again the example of what security looks like. Here Jesus is being treated harshly, cruelly, wrongly, but he's so secure in who he is, he doesn't feel the need to retaliate as the result of that. Instead, he lovingly keeps trying to reach them despite their severe opposition. And again, they're standing there with stones in their hand ready to execute him and to put him to death. Now, I look at this and it just is a great reminder to me, Jesus reveals that a secure person can remain stable even under severe opposition and not have a need to retaliate without being unsettled there's a sense of security that can come that jesus demonstrates there and i look at that and i go wow i've really got a long way to go <laughs> really got a long way to go you know yesterday after uh, yesterday morning actually my wife and my uh, two younger daughters they had gone up to york pennsylvania where they're at this weekend for homecoming there and my older daughter who's at college at karen university a christian university uh, it was having homecoming as well. So we had to do the divide and conquer thing. So I drove up to the homecoming thing uh, to get there in the morning. And as I pulled into the entrance uh, of the university, Christian university, 
I pull into the entrance of the university, and there's a banner there that says homecoming, and it's got a couple things written on it. So I kind of slow down about you know, 10, 15 miles an hour to just kind of creep along the driveway there to try and read the banner. And some joker behind me in SUV <laughs> lays on the horn who's pulling into the same Christian university. I have to tell you, I was a split second from getting out of that car. <laughs> Road rage. I could just envision myself walking up to them saying a few things I'd not be proud to admit and saying, pardon me for, you know, holding you up for 15... I mean, I mean, and then, I have to admit, I drove slow as possible all the way up the driveway hoping they'd get ticked off and park their SUV and come over to me and then I think, hey, they started it, Lord. <laughs> Horrible. Horrible. What's the matter with me? I'm so far from being Christ-like. So far. Man, it's amazing the way that Jesus responds. Thank goodness he's given us his spirit to help us become more like him in the ways that he is. Well, let's finish up our text here. Therefore, they sought again to seize Jesus, but again, he escaped out of their hand and went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first. That's the other side of the Jordan. And there he stayed. So again, unlike me, Jesus avoided conflict. <laughs> he didn't look instigated. He eluded it and tried to diminish it. And many then came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all things John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. So look what happens. Jesus withdraws to avoid further tension and conflict, but notice the will of God just keeps unfolding anyway. It says in verse 42 or 41 there that many people kept crossing over the Jordan, coming to him still, and they're reflecting and talking about all that John said about Jesus initially as a man. And what did John say about Jesus? I have seen and testified this is the Son of God. Amen. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as the people were considering John's claims, verse 42 says, And many believed in Jesus there. Many believed in Jesus continually. Can I just say as we look at this text this morning, the crux of the matter when it comes to life and security is exactly verse 42 what have you done in relationship to believing upon Jesus? Because if you are believing upon Jesus, you will have a life that has stability and security now and you will know there is security eternally after your life is over. Let's stand, let's pray.